Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. In today's episode, we are going to talk about many fascinating things, including the two top external threats that are facing your business today. We're going to talk about what is a wicked problem, how to define it, and then what are the steps you need to put in place to solve that? We're also gonna talk about how power is more and more important sometimes when it comes to affecting change for your business and the world within which it operates. Enjoy. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. My guest today is the great Lisa Rablin, and her company name is Wicked Ideas. So, of course, I had to have her on and talk about it. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Wendy. It's great to be here. I am super excited. I have been reading your blog posts, and I always almost want to write a big, long message back. Oh, my gosh, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't about thought about that. So it's obvious that you have such a great journalistic background. So you started out as a journalist before mm -hmm. you started your business. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your journalism career. Like what, what made you make the transition? Oh, well, uh, I made the transition as many journalists have in the 21st century, not by choice. Uh, journalism was changing. And so I'll make this rather long story incredibly short. It just, after I had my daughter, who's now 17, it, really became a bit untenable for a number of different reasons for me to remain in there. And also because I was seeing journalism differently and I was seeing the world differently and I couldn't fit inside it anymore. But journalism is where my soul resides. I am a writer at heart. I still am a writer. And it is was all I ever wanted to be. I was the kid um, growing up who um, knew from the time I was 15 what I wanted to be. So it was always going to be a journalist. I was always going to be a journalist. And that is what I became. And you became almost New Brunswick famous for your work as a uh, as a um, journalist, where you actually were promoted and people bought the paper because of your articles. What was your focus and what do you attribute your success to? Mm, yeah. So I was, as I say, I was like a J-level celebrity in St. John, not A, not B, not even Kathy Griffith, D, like J-level. So if you were into politics and business, you knew who I was. So I always say New Brunswick is the land of Tigger. There's one of everything. Um, and so I had been at the paper. So I joined the paper in 1997. And then in 2001, the political columnist was stepping away from being a political columnist. He didn't want to do that anymore. And so they needed an, someone to step into his shoes. And so my editor came to me and said, would you like to be the political columnist now? This is um, a, maybe a classic story of a woman getting promoted. I was 
um, a little bit of a pain in the ass in the newsroom. Um, I was pretty strong on what I wanted to write about. I, I was, and I, I was, I, I broke news. And so one of my friends who was an editor, so it was all guys at the time. And he said, yeah, like, they kind of thought about giving you the column because then you'd be off on your own and they wouldn't have to daily manage you. <laughs> and um, I was, uh, so I, I, of course I find out this afterwards, but I don't care. So when I'm told to that I could be writing a political column, I was told I could write stuff about, you know, family with dynamics and relationships within the political culture. And it, the ideas I was being given were a little soft. Um, and so I, I remember my first week, my first week I wrote, the first column I wrote was about healthcare, whatever. Every Canadian journalist is all we ever write. That's the evergreen. How do we solve healthcare? The second one, I wrote a gossipy column about a political, a politician who was looking to move on and, um, that they were, tr they were struggling. His party was struggling to find the right appointment for him and all the different possible political appointments he could get. So this was not very common in New Brunswick at the time to actually write about that inside baseball stuff. And so that kind of made people go, whoa. And then my third column was about how the premier at the time was Bernard Lord. I wrote a column saying, I think he's um, not as enamored with his idea of getting rid of VLTs in New Brunswick. He had ran on a, on a platform of getting rid of VLTs. And I thought, you know what, now that he's in there and he sees how much money these things are making for New Brunswick's um, finance department, he might not be so as enamored, whatever. That's, so those are the three columns I write, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I think it was Thursday was his annual state of the province address. So, you know, most provinces have these, you know, so it's, you know, the, the Frederick Chamber of Commerce hosts this thing. Um, it has every big wig in the provinces there. I'm not, of course. And he mentions the column from the podium. And he's like, someone has written this week that I might not want to be getting rid of the VLTs. Well, let me tell you, I will be having this referendum. So the newspaper was owned uh, at the time by J.K. Irving, wealthiest man in region, one in one of the wealthiest in Canada. So everybody is there. The next morning, my publisher comes in and he says, whatever you're doing, you get to keep doing what you're doing. You keep writing columns like that. And that was it. I was like, so, you know, I owe Bernard Lord a debt of gratitude because he kind of made the column. Right. <laughs> Thank you for the free PR, like, you know. <laughs> right. And so then I was off and running and nobody asked me to do anything on family dynamics in the ledge ever again. That's amazing. So you <laughs> forged your own path there. Right. So I can't forge my own path. And, and because I wrote that column every day, it was a five day a week column, which is insane. So I was the only full-time political columnist in the province. So a couple of my colleagues, Kathy Caulfield, uh, she had a weekly column as well, but she was also still the reporter for the newspaper as well. And so the fact that I was no longer a reporter um, gave me that sort, sort of freed me to write whatever I wanted. <laughs> and so I did. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I love that story. So cool. 
And what, uh, so then natural, the, the industry changed. We've heard this all the time. Like, you know, I think it's the journalist. It's almost like a dying breed. I can remember I did actually presentations at uh, King's College on how to become a freelancer and what you need to do financially to oh, set yeah. yourself up for that. And I'm like, this is weird. I um, have done that presentation as well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Right. So when we look at all of that, now you you started Wicked Ideas. Was it always called Wicked Ideas? Because man, that is such a good name. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No. Um, so what so while I was writing my column, I took a bit of a sabbatical from the paper. So I wrote that column for five years and I took a two-year sabbatical where I went to writing just once a week. And I went to work at the University of New Brunswick with Dr. John McLaughlin, who was the president at the time. And we created one of Canada's first public outreach programs run by a university and we called it Next NB. And when I did that, and that was my first real foray into taking a deep, deep dive into complex issues and trying to understand that because that's what John wanted New Brunswick to start thinking about these massive waves of technological and economic change that were coming for Atlantic Canada. And how was this small resource extractive economy going to transition into the knowledge age? So after doing that, and then I returned to the newspaper, uh, preg- and I was pregnant at the time, um, it just felt like a little smaller world than when I had left it. So here was this place that I had loved and only ever wanted to walk into, and now it felt a little off. Like I describe it as like the radio dial that's just not quite on the station. Well, your mind had been expanded so much, and in order right. to, to go back, you would have had to shrunk your mind again, and that's impossible, because now Very- you know. Right, exactly. Now I know. And I was having conversations with people that I hadn't had as as a journalist, because as a journalist, there's always going to be a bit of a wall, right? Because what are they going to write? How are they going to present me, right? So, So I was having different conversations. So I left the paper um, shortly after Alex was born. And I started with sources started calling me for advice. So not necessarily to write, though some of them were, they were really calling me for advice on how to position themselves with government. So like a bit almost like a GR, Mm. which is a bit unusual for journalists. Usually when we leave, we get asked to do comps. So I did a little bit of comps, but a lot of it was GR with writing, right? Like, so help me position it and how do I write it? So I would do both those things. And so the first company, because my husband is a photojournalist and he had left the paper earlier than I had. And so our first company was called Word Photo. So I was the words, he was the photos. So we created one company together. And then um, in about 2011, John McLaughlin called me up and he said, the world is changing. I think it's time for us to try this again, but this time you need to lead and I'll support you. And so that is where Wicked Ideas comes from. So Wicked Ideas is really me taking all of the work that John and I had done together and commercializing a lot of that thinking and then going out and becoming a practitioner of all of that. So that's Wicked Ideas. And so Wicked Ideas, the name is a riff off of the term wicked problems, which is a real word. It's a real term from the seventies and it uh, refers to complex um, nonlinear problems. So it comes out of social development and social thinking. Uh, So help me, can you go a little deeper into what a complex nonlinear problem (laughs) is right right like because i um you know sometimes for me deciding what for breakfast feels very complex so i know it's not that what is the next level right so let me explain so they're called wicked problems 
because they're opposite to a tame problem. So a tame problem is a problem that you can always follow the same set of instructions and mm -hmm. get the same result, okay? So if you're going to make pancakes for breakfast, how to make the pancakes, that's the tame problem because you've got a recipe. Yeah. And if you follow it correctly, you're going to get a pancake. Yes. A wicked problem, as I say, wicked problems are slow. So that's an acronym for what causes it to be complex. Okay. So the S stands for it's saddled with vested interests. So there's more than one opinion at play. Mm -hmm. And there's usually a financial motivation for those vested interests to be saying what they're saying and defending the position they're defending, yes. right? Okay. So in your world, in the financial management world, that, that debate around cryptocurrencies and um, uh, the traditional financial sector, right? That's an obvious one where there's, there's lots and lots of money yes. in, and control involved there yeah. in regulation. So that's the S. The L is it lacks clarity because of incomplete, contradictory, or weaponized information. So when you think about COVID-19, that L was really, really in play. We were confused. We didn't have enough information. The information was um, contradictory. And of course, now the web, it's been weaponized, right? It's become politicized. Yeah. So that makes COVID-19 a wicked problem. Yeah. The O is other wicked problems add to the complexity. So you start digging in on your problem and then you realize, oh, well, that's that's a thing. And the, oh my God, that's a thing. Oh, inequity is a thing now. And oh, oh, systemic racism. Oh, okay. Yeah. And oh, crumbling infrastructure, right? Like, so, it, so other things, that's when people are saying, but don't forget, we have to make sure we remember. And they insert something that we can't forget. Yeah. I'm solving this problem. That's the O. And that's where everybody goes, oh my God, can we end this meeting? <laughs> <laughs> I am now, I now must leave. <laughs> I must leave this meeting now. Right? That's that's the O when you go, oh my God. <laughs> focus, people. Let's focus. And then the W is waiting. You are forced to wait for decisions. Because the people making the decisions fear a loss of reputation, trust, or a loss of financial investment, or some combination of all three. Because the thing about a wicked problem, and how you'll definitely know it's a wicked problem, is you won't know if you made the right decision until you try it out and see what happens. Mm. So that's really why it's not a tame problem, right? Is this why Everybody. we see uh, in politics trial balloons? Mm hmm. Yes. People are saying, oh, what if we did this? How are you going to react? Right. Or the uh, prolific prototype. Tell me. Or more. test case. <laughs> beta. Or beta that then never becomes an alpha. Right. Right. So when you think, for instance, of the education system, right? So my kid is graduating from grade 12 this year. And here in New Brunswick, they've been debating and trying out all sorts of things for French immersion since she entered French immersion in grade three. That's 10 years of beta testing, prototyping, test schools. And then it never comes to fruition. It never gets widespread 
adoption? I have a hypothesis. I did some work a few years ago with, um, in, I did some consulting in the healthcare about physician pay, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. I became very depressed. Yes. uh, Very depressed. Uh, and I was like, I don't know that there's any way things can change because of the four-year political cycle, because it feels like a lot of the wicked ideas that would solve the wicked problem need more time to roll out and show you what the true answer or, or the true results would be. Yes, that is always the case because they're complex, right? But mm-hmm. where I say, yes, that's absolutely true. But in a four-year cycle, which is actually a two-and-a-half-year cycle, because especially if the government changed, yeah. right? Because that first six to eight months, they're just figuring out what room they're supposed to be in. Right. And then the last 12, eight to 12 months, they're campaigning. Yeah. So if you've ever done any work with government, you feel it slow down as an, as an election approaches, and then you... It does. So I always say you probably got a good solid two and a half years of solid, we can get stuff done within government. Well, in a two and a half year period, if you're actually focused and think through what you can accomplish, you actually can put down the roots to allow something to get started that can't be undone if government changes. And so that's where you have to move, as I say, so we can move fast. We can come up with solutions that move fast. And that's another acronym. So fast is it has to be focused on our shared values and a shared purpose because then we're all in it together. So those vest, you turn those vested interests into have as into a network with a sh- with mutual benefits clearly defined, right? Mm-hmm. When you can do that, then the only thing changing in a four-year political cycle are the politicians everybody else in that network remains the same. And so when the new politicians come in, if new ones come in, then you can help them move it along and they'll see the success, right? Right. So that's the F. The A, it has to be adaptable as new information and situations happen. The S is scalable because that's the thing. It's, it's, you know, and in, um, in the tech world, in the startup world, they talk about the valley of death. Mm-hmm. So I, in the world of wicked problems, I call it the wicked wall of resistance. So you're moving along, you're doing fine with a few people, and then you smack right into the wicked wall of resistance. I say, you know, you think you're the, you think you're the roadrunner, but you're actually the coyote. <laughs> and, but in the tech world, that, that valley of death is you've run out of resources, right? So the mm-hmm. resources have run dry. And so that's what happens it's the same thing in trying to solve the problem. So you need to be scalable. So the problem has to be able to scale. And then it has to be timestamped. I say that's the T in fast is you got to have a good deadline and you have to determine what will you get to in that deadline. And so that's why I focus on tell me where you want to go. What's the destination? Right. And then we'll build the schedule from there. Right. That's interesting. We were talking in the green room about you can know the path or you can know the destination, but you can't know both. Right. So, and you're, you, so you focus on the destination of where people want to get to. Um, It sounds like you've been involved with some government clients. Do you have entrepreneurial clients as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So most of my, so most of my entrepreneurial clients, in fact, all of them um, 
are the ones who will eventually need government to change. So in the beginning, I specialized in um, businesses that worked within regulated environments, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And now, of course, that's expanding because now more and more I'm coming, I'm meeting entrepreneurs, for instance, in the climate space, that can only do so much unless government changes regulations, right? So if you're trying to, for instance, um, change how people finance climate projects, right? Mm -hmm. If we're in the financial markets and you are creating, you're selling um, financial products that will actually be invested in green technology and all that, right? You will be only so successful as long if you are doing business in jurisdictions that have yet to create incentives for green investment or uh, sanctions for non-green, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm finding, and I'd say the change started to shift during COVID, is as we're moving forward on change, the regulatory environment is proving to be the biggest impediment to positive change and wide scale change. Because up until now, the change has been happening in the margins, but enough of it has happened now, it needs to come into the center. And so the center on things like this are regulatory, is, is regulatory because you're trying to control capital. It all comes down to capital. Your business is making a profit, you're growing but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. So with Wicked Ideas, how do you help solve that problem? How do you solve Wicked Problems? Do you help identify the problem and then help lay out the destination and then the roadmap? Like, what are you doing with Wicked Ideas? So with Wicked Ideas, I I talk to people about how do you build and influence power? And, and in particular, how to get power to shift. Mm. And that's sort of new language for me in the past year. Because before I focused on, oh, you know, let's do some positive change. Let's make change happen. But as I said, what I realize now is it's it really, we are really talking about power. And so as an entrepreneur or as a nonprofit uh, CEO, Are you comfortable with talking about how you will step into your power to cause change, which is different for an entrepreneur or a business owner than to say, how do you step into your power as a leader? Yes. Well, it feels like to step into your power to affect change. Am I right in saying you you are a disruptor in order for that to happen? And that requires maybe a different set of characteristics than chugging along and being positive. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Because you have to take a risk. Right. 
And yes, entrepreneurship is a series of risks and running a business is a series of risks. But it's at what level of change are you trying to have an impact? Mm. So mostly when we talk about business and when we talk about uh, change within a business, we're really talking about process improvement, right? Yeah. Incremental. Incremental. Incremental, improving efficiencies, improving productivity. And that is important. Sure, of course it is. Absolutely. However, if you actually have a business that is attempting to become successful in the knowledge economy and in an economy where climate change and environmental concerns are actually a thing, right? Like it's a thing. You and I, we live on the East Coast, right? We know climate change, it's a thing. It's a thing, right? So if just this week, as we're recording, um, CSIS made a presentation to the Canadian, to a parliamentary committee in Ottawa saying climate change is one of the greatest threats to Canadian national security. Of course it is. Of course it is. So when you start thinking as a business owner, what external risks outside of the market outside of sales fluctuations is going to impact my company and how am i preparing for those external risks can i can i ask you if the blockbuster example would would relate to that what you just said mm-hmm. i don't think they were looking externally Mm-mm. no most businesses don't so so that's where i have so the external there are two massive external threats mm-hmm. One is technological, mm-hmm. right? So what's AI going to do? Yeah. Just AI alone. Yeah. Right? So technological change, that's an external shift. That's an external threat to your business, mm-hmm. right? So you got to think to yourself, I'm the mall owner and I'm six months, it's six months before Amazon launches. Were you thinking about Amazon when you owned that mall? Yeah. Right? Property owners. In February of 2000, of 2020, February 2020, property owners, were they thinking large pieces of property that they owned would all of a sudden stop making money for them? Right. And they'd never make money for them ever again? Right. Because of regulation around rent. Right. And because everybody went home and now employees don't want to go back. Yes. Right. So I was going to ask if hybrid work is a wicked problem. Hybrid work is ex- is indeed a wicked problem, and in fact, it's not just so. But it, it's a so hybrid work is a is a wicked problem for an employer. Yes. Um, hybrid work is a different problem for a property for for a developer. Right. Or or re- so the stakeholder right. who the stakeholder is can change the 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 face of the problem. Right. And so if you are, so what we're seeing, for instance, is businesses are announcing they're bringing people back for two to three time, days a week. But some of the ex- reasons they're giving it is because we believe in our, we believe in our downtown core and we, we want to support our other, it's like your employees do not give a crap yep. if Cadillac Fairview or whoever quarterly results aren't looking so hot. Yeah. That is not the reason you give to get people to come back two to three days a week. Right. To get them to spend their money in other stores, <laughs> like, right? 
Okay, so if tech is one of the external threats, what's the second big external threat we're looking at as environment? It's environment. environment. Okay. And and it's not so that's not just climate, that's environment. Uh, so um, climate is certainly the biggest one, but we are also seeing so the idea of biodiversity is and the threat to and the species risk, and then also um, we are changing the chemical makeup of air water and land. And so that is, of course, having an effect. So we live here on the east coast of Canada. The chemical makeup of the oceans is changing, and that is changing and having an impact on the fisheries industry, right? If I am a business owner, I now have said, oh my goodness, this issue A is a wicked problem. What are the first two or three things I should do to start solving that problem? Well, obviously they should call me. Um, (laughs) um, Well, the first thing you have to do is, again, sit down and think, where do you want to go? And really think about that destination. Mm -hmm. And then the way to get to that destination is to identify and then operationalize your values. And so let me explain a bit what I'm talking about. So. A few years ago, I worked with the New Brunswick um, Commission on Hydraulic Fracturing, which, so fracking, probably one of the most controversial energy extraction processes in North America right now. The commission was asked to figure out basically, do you have the social, do we have the social license to allow fracking in New Brunswick? The commissioners decided that was actually the wrong question to ask. Yeah. Because that question only has a yes or a no. Mm. And that is why it was, it was like a 50-50 split. What they decided is what we actually needed to do is step back and say, how do we ensure that New Brunswickers have access, have, have ready access to reliable, affordable, and increasingly clean energy in 10 years? So you see, they took what you would say is a big topic, and they you could almost argue they made it bigger because they said, well, this isn't a question about fracking. This is a question about energy. Yeah. But you see, when you ask that big, what then the next question is. Okay, so if that's the destination, does natural gas have a role to play in getting us there? And if the answer is yes, then how will we access it? Right. And that's a very different question than should we allow fracking in New Brunswick? Yeah. Because you actually have now created the context for a very different conversation. Well, in my mind, it feels like the destination really, it's... It, the, the important piece is defining the right question to answer. Right. right. And it might be your first step as you start looking for your destinations, defining the right question. That's right. And so we're entering the knowledge age. This, the knowledge age, as I say, so the industrial age, the, 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 it was powered by steam, right? And the knowledge age is powered by information. Yeah. By knowledge. So some of the key values, the core values around the knowledge age are access. So Mm. access to information, right? We now have it through our phones, through computer networks. Access, it moves fast. So speed, mobility, we can have it wherever and however we want it. Yeah. And that two-way exchange. So if you start by thinking, okay, access, speed, mobility, and exchange, that is what this new world is being built upon, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Right. 
At the same time, we want some order. I want to have a degree of control, you know, so it doesn't feel like anarchy and defined, like I want to be able to define it. And that's sort of the values of a hierarchy of how we've always worked up till now. So when you start thinking about your destination, access has to be a part of the So what access will be granted? How and what kind of an exchange am I going to have in that world? And how can it move quickly Mm -hmm. and be available however, wherever, whenever it's required? So when you think of the financial services industry and wealth and wealth management, what would that look like? What does that world look like where it's also safe and secure mm-hmm. and defined? Because we also want that too, right? Yeah. I, I find that interesting because when you look at my, there's so many silos in my world, right? And we're actually, we're actually working on the software to break those down for people. Right. So we can have a better sense of where they're at. Um, I'm trying to come up with an acronym for all these words because you had so many good ones earlier. And I'm, not, I'm it'll may, it may take me some time. Check the show, show notes and maybe okay. I, will have, I will have come up with it before this episode publishes. <laughs> now, what's interesting, uh, I want to go back a little bit because there must have been a wall of resistance that you faced as you grew your business mm. to find exactly what you did, da 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 what was the biggest wall you hit? And then how did you get around it? The biggest wall I hit were blank looks. Okay. Because, um, and we talked about this in the green room. And so when I worked for the Telegraph Journal, when I wrote that column, I remember my editor telling me that it was responsible. It was the number one reason for single copy sales of the newspaper. So that meant people who were picking it up at a store, not a circulation. Yeah. That's a pretty big deal Huge. to to make people buy the paper. So my head was on billboards, it would be above the banner, right? Like so that's the J level celebrity piece, right? Like yeah. um read what Lisa's writing t- today. So I was the lead magnet for the product. Yeah. So what happens when the lead magnet becomes the product? Yeah. It doesn't work very well. And so that was my great struggle that I like, I knew how to write that column and I knew how to explain big thoughts and I could go on shows and radio and TV and give speeches, but I didn't know how to sell that as that alone or to explain to people what you were actually getting when you would hire me Mm -hmm. other than big thoughts, like, right. So people enjoyed reading me, they enjoyed talking to me and then they went away I had to figure out how to convert that into a business. And so that was that was quite challenging. And of course, because of course, I, I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to start a business. I started a business by accident because people were calling me. Right. Yeah. So it was, a, so that was it. And so then when I started trying to think about what this business could be, I got a lot of blank looks because I don't come from the world of business. And so often my language didn't align right. with people in business when I was trying to explain what I was trying to do. And of course I was trying to do this at a time as journalism is collapsing. And so I could see at the time what was going to happen. I knew that the collapse of journalism was going to lead to um, stalemate around massive issues because there was no where that people would be able to 
learn right. about a big complex issue. No one was, no one's job was to dig in and then figure out how to present it in a way that people could understand it. Right. So, it. so that was my biggest challenge is in the beginning, it was convincing people that there was a business in here, but I, I myself needed help to understand what the business could be. But we live in a part of the country where media is not a major industry. And so I didn't have other thinkers or entrepreneurs or business owners who could advise me on that. So it was, it was very lonely. So I'd say that was it. It was the, it was the blank looks. And then the more blank looks you get, well, first of all, it was shocking to someone who's paid to explain stuff. Right. Right. To not be understood. I didn't under. Like, I I don't understand. I didn't understand why no one could understand me. Yeah. And then of course that, that does take a toll on your mental health, right? That does take a toll on your, on your confidence. Yeah. If no one understands what you're saying. It feels a little bit like um, you've heard that saying that sometimes it's hard to read the label on the bottle when you're inside the bottle. Right. It was, you needed the help to put the right label on. So everybody wanted what was in the bottle. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, so I think in the last few years, I've kind of figured that piece out. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. If you had one piece of advice to give to entrepreneurs about wicked problems or wicked ideas, what would it be? That you really do need to put your values to work. It's not as complicated as you think. Complexity doesn't have to be complicated. Mm -hmm. That your values, what you stand for, are your North Star. They're going to guide you, but not in an airy fairy way, right? Like they're the, uh, on the highway to your destination, they're the guardrails. They are. And if you actually assign tasks based on your values, so for instance, if you make the word, if the word open is one of your values, what does that mean to be open with employees? What does it mean to be open with vendors, with clients, with regulators? Does it make sense? Mm. I was working with, um, I was doing a workshop last year with uh, actually a group of land developers. And um, we were going through the words that they could pick. And one of them said, he, he started out thinking educate, which is a very common one. Most, a lot of people say, I need to educate. I just need to educate people. I just need to understand. But when you sit down, you say, well, how are you going to educate your investors? How are you going to educate your suppliers? And when you start asking it that way, he started saying, I don't, I sound like an a-hole if I'm educating my investors. (laughs) Right? Because you do. Because then he realized, oh, that's the wrong word. The right word was share. Which was, which he interpreted in the beginning of our conversation as a light, airy, fairy word, right? That's a very kumbaya, let's burn some incense. We're going to share, we're going to share. And educate sounds so much more. I got that. Yeah. Boom. Educate is like, boom, we got this. So that's actually one of my great learnings in the past year is because then the opposite is true. I was working with an environmental NGO and who they want to make big, bold moves. And they picked all of the kumbaya words. And I said, why didn't you pick the word bold? And they're like, oh, well, that's, that's, I said, but you want the entire city in five years to be making decisions through an environmental lens. That's bold. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I said, and you're not going to do that 
just by collaborating <laughs> and cooperating. I mean, those are great words, but they're not necessarily. Right? Yeah. So, like, so that's what I say about when you put your values to work, when you decide they are going to be your operating principles, you're, you'll be surprised what words you end up picking. Oh, I love that. Lisa, who should call you and how do they get a hold of you? Ah, well, you can get a hold of me. Well, as I say, I'm the easiest person to find on social media because I'm the only Lisa Rablick. Uh, so you can absolutely find me on LinkedIn. You can come to the website, wickedideas.ca, where you can also sign up for A Little Wicked Thinking, the weekly newsletter. And any, you know, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, and government people who know that they need to bring change that will require structural or regulatory change for them to succeed and that they can't do it alone. So that's the power shift. If you need power to shift to enable you to continue to be successful and scale, then I can help you because we will shift hearts, minds, and money in under 12 months. I love that. I, I feel like there's a couple things where I'm coming up with the real bottom line here. So I'm going to use them both. And yeah. one of them is you have to define a wicked problem. You go slow to solve it. You go fast. And those mm -hmm. acronyms are in our thing. And the second thing is power can be good. Power can be good. It's like Gandalf with his on the, on the bridge in one of those movies where he's like, you shall not pass power. Thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. This was awesome. All right. Take care, Wendy. Wow. There was just so much learning in this episode. Do you want more? I have a special offer for the right entrepreneur, a complimentary one-on-one -on -one coaching session that is all about you, your business, and your goals so that you can accelerate your business and start to accelerate the growth of your network. Head over to wealthcoachwithwendy.com. There you will find a letter that kind of outlines all the details of this offer and also an application form. We have an application form because there's such a limited number of, of slots that we're opening up for this that we want to make sure that the people that um, uh, do are successful in getting the slot, we can make the biggest difference with. So head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and apply today. Thanks.